Good morning. Uh, great to see you. Can I add my welcome, especially if you are uh, new here this morning? It's great to have you with us. Um, if you don't know me, it's Colin Tell. My name's Callum, part of the leadership team here at Gateway. Uh, and today, as you can see, we are continuing our series looking at the church. And my job uh, this morning is to try and uh, do my best to show you that caring for the poor, um, caring for those in need, for the oppressed, is not an optional extra that we care about here at Gateway because we're nice folks, um, but instead that it's essential to the mission of God and his people and to his church, meaning that it's essential for you and me as disciples of Jesus. But more than that, actually, that it's inseparable from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, before we open the Bible, though, I just want to start by highlighting some of the issues we face here in the UK around poverty. Um, I know we talk a lot about uh, Citygate Church and our friends in Burundi, and we've just taken up a special offering uh, for regions beyond, part of which is going to go into um, fueling church planting and mission and ministry to the poor all around the world. Um, but in the UK and in the West more generally, I think we have been inundated with images and marketing and campaigns that imply that poverty is something that only happens halfway around the world, some, somewhere in different continents and different countries. Um, and of course, every continent, every country is faced with many people living in poverty. Um, but given our familiarity with that already here in the West, um, I just want to bring it here for a minute and just make the point that, of course, it's also true of here in the UK and of here in Swindon. And there might be relatively little of the kind of poverty that threatens life here in the UK, but um, it doesn't mean that there's no poverty at all. It's not an either-or situation. So, according to research carried out by uh, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, who are a charity that carry out and fund research into um, helping those in need, aimed at solving poverty in the UK. They found last winter, so uh, December 2022, 7.2 million households in the UK went without essentials. Hungry, cold, without other basics in the UK, showers, toiletries, adequate clothing for the winter. Um, 7.2 million households and a further... 4.7 million households were behind on their bills because they simply couldn't afford to pay them. And you might be thinking, well, of course, we're in a cost of living crisis. Uh, but this is not just a current problem. Right? For the last 20 years, there's been no meaningful improvements to living standards in the UK at all, especially for those on lower incomes. The UK has become a lot wealthier over those 20 years, but all of that wealth is tightly concentrated. And in fact, now the UK has some of the largest geographical inequalities in the entire Western world. Improvements in life expectancy have stalled. For some, they've actually gone backwards. In 2021, for example, 20% of the whole population of the UK were living in poverty. One in five people were living in poverty, roughly 13 and a half million, nearly four million of which were children. Um, and actually, as I was preparing the Joseph, uh, this week, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation published a report on Tuesday um, called Destitution in the UK. And the report found that 3.8 million people, including a million children last year, experienced what they call destitution, which is defined as the inability to meet basic physical needs, to stay warm, dry, clean, fed. 
And in the report, they highlight uh, the Trussell Trust, which many of us will know, the largest network of food banks in the UK. And they highlight the good work uh, that they're doing. They gave out nearly 3 million emergency food parcels last year, which is the highest number they've ever given out in one year. And last year, just to bring it even closer to home, last year in Swindon, the government, uh, HMRC, DWP, estimates that before anything like housing costs, living costs are taken into consideration, 25% of children aged 0 to 15 in Swindon last year were living in poverty, by which they mean that families were unable to uh, meet the basic needs of their children in their homes. 25% of children, that's nearly 6,000 children just in Swindon last year. And in fact, across the whole of the UK, children have consistently had the highest poverty rates over the last 25 years. It's all quite harrowing. Why is it important for us here? We're a church, our job is to evangelise, to save souls. I make such a big thing of of caring for those in need. Like, sure, we want to care for our own, for those inside the church community. But anyone can care for people outside the church. And in fact, many charities and many people already do, and they do it very, very well. Surely our job is to rescue people from an eternity without God. Isn't all of this social justice, this caring for the poor, whether it's here in the UK or overseas, just a distraction? Well, we're going to go on a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of the Bible and see how God responds to poverty and how he instructs his people to respond to poverty, and then we can make up our minds at the end. And I think the first place for me to start, the very first act of caring for those in need in the Bible comes immediately after the fall, immediately after uh, the humans rebel against God in Genesis 3. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You might have heard uh, preachers before link this to covering of our skins by the work of sins by the skins, covering of our sins by the work of Jesus. Um, But surely God here also acts because the people are in need. They're in a hostile environment now. They're no longer in his presence in the garden. They're naked and they need clothing. Moving on in Genesis, we get God's promise to Abraham of being a his seed being a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that first happens through Joseph and a hunger relief program in Genesis 41. And when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Um, Whenever I'm up here, I always feel, after following Nigel, I always feel like slightly static when I preach. And I feel, because Nigel's, <laughs> Nigel's all over the place, and, <laughs> and I'm just walking backwards and forwards like a rocking horse. But, um, so I'm sorry <laughs> um, if you get slightly seasick. Um, but jumping through, anyway, that's, that's not anywhere on my notes, obviously. Um, jumping through Exodus to Deuteronomy, God provides manna and water for the Israelites in their hunger and their thirst. And God gives the law to Moses, a law where social righteousness is, is just as important as personal righteousness. The Israelites, for example, they're forbidden to harvest all of their fields so that the poor can glean, them, uh, glean from them for free. They were told to give to the poor until the poor had no need, especially if that person was a neighbor or a kinsman. The priests had to give to the poor out of the tithes given to God and to the temple. 
And it was more than just handouts as well. God required the Israelites to give a slave who'd been freed from slavery and debt. He required the Israelites to give them grain and livestock and land so that they would be self-sufficient. Every seven years, debts were supposed to be cancelled. Every 49 years was supposed to be a jubilee, a year where not only debts were forgiven, but land was to be returned to the original tribal and family owners from the time the Israelites entered the land from Egypt. As we heard a few weeks ago when Donna was here, the psalmist writes of a God who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and seats them with princes. And all throughout the Psalms, in fact, the writers give a picture of a God who protects the poor from those who oppress them, who offers them refuge, satisfies them, saves them, rescues them, provides for them, uh, undertakes justice for them, defends them, upholds their cause. Proverbs talks a whole lot about the importance of caring for the poor, the needy, the oppressed. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever's kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 21, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. 28, those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Proverbs 29, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. But the problem, if you keep on going through the Old Testament, is that Israel did not keep the laws that God gave them, and they did not reflect his heart for caring for the poor and the oppressed. So the prophets judge Israel's failure to care for the poor as breaking covenant with God. Amos, in fact, says that their failure to care for the poor and the oppressed is as repugnant to God as idolatry and adultery. Isaiah says that caring for the poor is evidence of a true relationship with God. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Micah 6, a verse many of us will know, I'm sure. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Christopher Wright, who's an uh, Old Testament scholar, he says that the primary ethical thrust of the Old Testament is in fact social. He says failure to honour God in the material realm by caring for those in need, by giving of our finances in the Old Testament cannot be compensated for by religiosity in the spiritual realm. So we have this story in the Old Testament of how God cares for the poor and how he requires his people to care for the poor. And then, of course, we reach Jesus. Jesus, whose first sermon is from Isaiah 61. It's uh, recounted in Luke 4. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That was good audience participation there. Uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight 
to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of every person in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The poor, I would argue, are the special focus of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus lived with them, ate with them, associated with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the outcasts, the lepers. Not only did he meet the lepers' need for healing, but he touched them, giving them their first human contact in years. When Jesus eats at the house of a Pharisee in Luke 14, he tells his host not to invite the rich to, when he hosts a dinner, but to invite the poor. And uh, John Newton, uh, who the hymn writer, the ex-slave trader, he writes about this passage in Luke 14. Um, and saying it's one, he says it's one of the most neglected by the church, one of the, most, uh, the least taught on by the church. And he says, um, if these words in Luke 14 don't teach us that it's in some respects our duty to give a preference to the poor, I'm at a loss to understand them. Jesus showed special concern for children, uh, despite his disciples' belief that they weren't worth his time, which maybe, given some of those statistics, is something we should um, bear in mind. He tells the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. He talks about judgment based on how we care for the poor in Matthew 25. He says the one group that they gave him food when he was hungry, drink when thirsty, clothes when naked, that they invited him in when a stranger, that they cared for him when sick, visited him when in prison. And to another group, he says that they did none of these things. And both groups ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? And to the first group, God says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And to the second group, he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And the first group received the inheritance of the Father, and the second, it says in Matthew 25, are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Seems pretty clear so far to me. And this care for the poor continues into the early church. Acts 4 talks about such radical generosity in the church that there were no needy persons among them. In Acts 6, there's a daily distribution of food to those in need. And the apostles appoint seven outstanding leaders to make sure that it is served well. One of the last things Paul says to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20 is that they must help those in need. And remember the words of Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. John, in his first letter, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, not love with words or with speech, but with action and in truth. James, when he writes his letter, he says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And he goes on to say later in his letter, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep well fed, keep warm, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And Tim uh, Keller, who's really good on all of this stuff, um, he clarifies that James is saying that a life given for the poor in care for the poor is the inevitable sign, the inevitable sign of any real, true, justifying gospel faith. True faith always produces a changed life. And you might have heard this phrase before, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. Grace makes you just. And if you're not just, you've not truly been justified by faith. Caring for the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of faith. It's not optional. It's not an addition to being a Christian. It's not something we can add on to an affirmation of a set of beliefs. It's the inevitable sign of true faith. And actually, it continues on into the early church. So um, when the early church baptized new converts, um, some of the questions they asked them were not just Romans 10 of, do you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart? But they asked them, do you visit orphans and um, widows? Do you care for the poor? It was part of when they baptized people, the questions they asked. Because it was so foundational to their understanding of what it means to be, uh, to have true faith, to be a believer, was are you giving for the poor, to the poor? And actually it continues on uh, about 300 years after Jesus' death. uh, The emperor, Roman emperor Julian, uh, complains about the Christians saying that they care not only for their own poor, but for the poor in Rome as well. And he says, we're being shown up. (laughs) Um, Hopefully you get the idea. Scripture repeatedly shows a God who cares for the poor, repeatedly instructs believers to care for the poor, tells us that it's the sign that we have real, true faith. It's essential to the mission of God, essential for his church, essential for you and for me and it's been essential throughout most of church history Galatians 2 actually just one more story from the Bible Um, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to check with the apostles and elders there that the gospel that they've been preaching to the Gentile world is okay that it doesn't need anything added to them that it's the same as the gospel that the apostles there are preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem Um, Paul wants to make sure he's not missing anything out. And it says uh, that James, Peter, and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. In, in other words, they approved of everything that Paul was preaching. Um, and then we get this slightly surprising verse in verse 10 of Galatians 2. And Paul says, actually, they did ask me one thing, and that is to remember the poor, which Paul says he was eager to do anyway. We can't remember the gospel but forget the poor, because otherwise our gospel is lacking. Likewise, we can't do the opposite and remember the poor, but forget the gospel. But either way, the good news of Jesus Christ and caring for the poor are inseparably linked. Um, I'm going to mention Tim Keller again. Um, He says, The resurrection shows us that God not only created both body and spirit, but will also redeem both body and spirit. The salvation that Jesus will eventually bring in its fullness will include liberation from all of the effects of sin, not only spiritual, but physical and material as well. 
Jesus came both preaching the word and healing and feeding. Loving deeds, he says, are an irreplaceable witness to the power and nature of God's grace, grace an irreplaceable testimony to the truth of the gospel. It's inseparable from the good news of Jesus. And if you think back for a minute to those statistics I read at the beginning, they're all primarily focused around economic poverty because that's mostly what our society and what the world um, judges as, as need, is having enough finances. Um, but the Bible doesn't actually just present poverty as a, as a purely one-dimensional economic issue. And uh, Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams, who are both uh, the founder and the current CEO of a charity called Jubilee Plus, um, suggest, they suggest a four-part kind of framework for understanding how the Bible talks about poverty. And first, of course, they talk about economic poverty, which you've already mentioned, lacking the material means to be able to meet uh, need and support yourself viably within society. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Uh, relational poverty, uh, lacking a family or a community network that you can turn to in moments of distress. Aspirational poverty, lacking hope, the capacity to get yourself out of the situation that you are in, and of course, spiritual poverty, lacking ultimate meaning in life, lacking a relationship with God through Christ the Son. Poverty is not just about money. Jesus cared for those in physical need, yes, but he also cared for those who were hopeless and who were mourning and who were oppressed and despised, to those who were relationally, aspirationally and spiritually poor as well as economically poor. And he calls us to do the same. In fact, it's what he did for us. We were all deeply impoverished because of our sin. We were all in a state of relational, aspirational, spiritual poverty, even if not economic. Poverty in our relationship with God, with ourselves, our own souls, with others, in fact, with the whole creation. And it's easy, I think, um, especially when you're using language like the poor, to kind of create a bit of a divide, an us and them mentality. The poor are somewhere over here, and here we are, the wealthy, the middle class, the educated, the whatever separator you want to use. Um, it's easy to develop a savior complex, kind of an air of superiority. But, oh my goodness, the gospel, if you haven't realized, utterly blows that away. Completely tears it to shreds. We were bankrupt before God. We were utterly, utterly bankrupt, poor and needy, dead, in fact, in our sins. The best of our meager offerings, the Bible says, a filthy rag, like clothes stained with bodily fluids. We couldn't even save ourselves, let alone save anyone else. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus came to rescue us, each of us, from our poverty, to proclaim good news to the poor, to us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God, who spoke 
all things into being, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, whose storehouses are full in the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ became poor for our sake. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spent his last evening on earth in a borrowed room, and after he died was laid in a borrowed tomb. Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked or thirsty or in prison? On the cross, where Jesus died amongst thieves, amongst the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised. And through his poverty, through his death and his resurrection, we have become rich. We are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then we are heirs. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, born again to a living hope, born again into God's family, qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, promised the kingdom. The Bible says heirs of the whole world, fellow heirs with Christ. So if we feel that kind of divide, that us and them mentality growing in our souls, we need to be confronted again with the reality of the gospel. So I just want to finish by um, challenging each of us here this morning. Um, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, um, he says that successfully reading and understanding the Bible should result in us being formed into persons who love God and who love others better. If you read Psalm 113, for example, where it talks about God raising the poor from the dust and seating them with princes, and we allow worship to rise up in our hearts, love for God, the kind of God that he is, the kind of things that he does, if we allow that worship for God, that love for God to rise up in our hearts, then that is amazing. But if that's where it ends, if it doesn't cause us to think how we can be serving the poor and lifting the poor from the dust in our own lives, if it doesn't cause us to love others in the same way that God loves them, then at least, according to Augustine, we've not successfully understood the scriptures. I don't know what answer you'd give if I asked you what the opposite of love is. I wonder if a few people might say hate. You know, I don't hate anybody, so maybe I have understood the scriptures. Um, but I wonder if the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference or apathy, a lack of concern for others, a turning of our heads across the roads like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan a closing of our eyes to need and injustice. And so my question to you and to me this morning is, have we understood the scriptures? Do we have in our hearts not just a love for God, but a love for others, a love for neighbor, a desire to do right by others, a desire to, a commitment to mercy and to justice, to reconciliation and radical love? Or are we simply indifferent? apathetic, outsourcing our care for the poor to others, to charities, to the church, as if that's something different from you and me? Do we just gloss over those statistics that I read out at the beginning, forgetting that each one of those numbers is a person? Have we allowed our souls to be confronted again with the gospel, which is good news, Jesus says to the poor? And look, I know that each of us in this room has different gifts, different roles to play, 
different responsibilities. Some of us will spend the majority of our time and our lives given in service to the poor, and others of us here will spend a lot less of our time. But we cannot chalk it off as somebody else's job, somebody else's gifting, somebody else's role. It's essential for each one of us as disciples of Jesus. And for many of us, it might look like something like giving, like we've done this morning, giving to those in need. Maybe you think, I don't have lots of finance. Um, Well, firstly, let me just gently encourage and challenge you uh, using the words of one Puritan preacher who says, if we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it only without burdening ourselves, then how is that command to bear one another's burdens ever properly fulfilled? Giving generously to those in need will cost us. We'll have to make sacrifices, change plans, surrender wants and desires. We shouldn't only expect to give when it costs us nothing. But secondly, let me remind you of the story of um, Peter and John outside the temple, uh, the temple gate in Acts 3, where they're asked for money by a beggar who's waiting there. Um, They stop, they look him in the eye, and Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Even if we have no material possessions to give, just like Peter and John in Acts 3, we can still give out of our abundance. The abundance of grace that we have each received as those who've been made rich through Christ Jesus' poverty. So maybe for you it's as simple as stopping, looking someone in the eye, shaking a hand, offering them that touch that maybe they've not had for years, having a conversation, showing you care, sharing the name of Jesus. Remember, poverty is not just economic. It is also relational, aspirational, spiritual. And each of us, whether we have money or not to give, can offer somebody in need relationship, hope, and the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's just ask ourselves, what does this look like in each of our lives? Where are we remembering the poor? Uh, it's 10 to. Can I just invite you to stand and I'll just finish by praying. If you're comfortable, can I just invite you just to close your eyes for a minute, just to hold out your hands. Jesus, we are your hands and feet here on earth. Lord, would you forgive us where we fall short of what you've called us to do? God, instead, would you help us to be a church that will be more courageous than cautious, that will not only pursue peace, but also demand justice, that will not remain silent when people are calling for a voice, that will not pass by on the other side, that will not merely comfort the afflicted, but also afflict the comfortable, that will not only come to worship, but also be sent out, to witness, that will follow you even when the way points to a cross. God of justice, I pray, would you break our hearts 
for what breaks yours. And Father, to those who are hungry here in Gateway, in Swindon, in the UK, in the nations, Father, to those who are hungry, God, we pray, would you give bread? God, and to those of us who have bread, Father, I pray, would you give us a hunger for justice? We worship you, God, and we give ourselves to all that you've called us to do. In the name of Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, we pray. Amen.